glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen him. The only God who is at no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Thus says the Lord. Uchipta and Jackie. All right, guys, welcome to CCC. Again, if this is your first time visiting us, I would love to meet you and get to know you. Uh, my wife and I would love to do that. So please come up to me, introduce yourselves, and I'll also introduce myself to you, and we'll get to know each other. Um, if you have been with us before, then you know that we're starting a series in a new book, which is the book of John. We just got done with studying the whole book of Galatians, and now we are into the book of John. Last week, we studied verses 1 to 13 on chapter 1, chapter 1, verses 1 to 13, and this week, we're going to do chapter 1, verses 14 to 18, but I have all of that in your, in your printouts with you because we're going to be referring to the whole, the whole section as we go through in the sermon today. So John, the book of John, is what we call a gospel. Now, this is not to be mistaken with the gospel. The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ died for our sins and that we're free in him and we carry our sins and the consequences of it no more. A gospel just means that this is a record of Jesus' life and ministry on earth. There's four gospels in the, in, in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Four records of Jesus' life and ministry on earth. So John is, is a gospel and we have to read it as a historical narrative, as a gospel in the life and ministry of Jesus. All right. So last week, we talked about verses 1 to 13, and we talked about a very difficult doctrine that that passage forced us to study, which is the doctrine of the Trinity, right? If you look at verse 1, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We talked about what does it mean to be with God, but also was God at the same time, and all that mess with the doctrine of the Trinity. If you want to know more about it, I, I don't have time to expound it again today, but listen to the sermon from last week. It's in SoundCloud under Covenant City Church, so check it out. But today we're going to enter into another really tough doctrine called the doctrine of the incarnation or the humiliation or the condescension of Christ. But let's just use incarnation and humiliation for now. Okay, so the incarnation of Christ. This is it's a fancy word for saying this is the study of how exactly God became man in the person of Christ. How did this word become flesh in verse 14, as we read? How did God become man? Why is Jesus Christ called God? And let me just say one thing before we start. Some doctrines of the Bible, such as the Trinity, the Incarnation, it will force our human brains to its very limit. Okay? Now, I made a diagram here. I never use diagrams for my sermons because I think it's not, it's not helpful, but I, I think for today it is helpful. Okay. If humans are finite, right, we're, we're, we're limited. We, we, have, we have a limit in how far our brains, the capacity of our minds in our brains. And if, and if God is infinite, meaning that God is unlimited, God doesn't have a limit to who he is, it only makes sense that as we study a subject that's infinite, for us to never grasp every single thing about him, you see, because we are finite and God's infinite. If we can grasp everything about God, that means either we are also infinite or God is finite. See what I'm saying? But if we are limited and God's unlimited, it only makes sense that there is mystery in 
the scriptures and what God has revealed about himself. Now, let me briefly talk about mystery before I get into our sermon because I think we'll be struggling with this and we can't really pay attention to the words in the text if we don't, if we don't address this first. Mystery, some, some Reformed people get nervous because we value our minds and we talk about mystery, we get kind of nervous and scared, but let me just explain what mystery is and isn't. Mystery is not mysticism. Mysticism, in the pure sense of its word, I, I know that mystics today say different things, but in the pure sense of its word, mysticism encourages vagueness and doesn't claim to have an authoritative source in the study of God. Mysticism um, um, uh, says that the use of the mind, is, we, don't, we don't encourage that because things are just mystical. That's not what mystery is. A, a medieval mystic named Meister Eckhart says, a lack of understanding is the best way to relate to God. That's not what we're saying. We're not saying the best way to relate to God is by lack of understanding. We're saying we should use our minds. We should use our God-given academia and cognitive capacity. But at some point, no matter how hard we push it, because God is infinite, we will reach a, a, a mysterious part of God. But it's not the discouraging of, of, of the mind. It's an encouragement of the mind with acknowledging human limitations. Mystery is not mysticism. Mystery is not a cop-out. A kapow is like saying, it's, again, it's discouraging the mind and saying, yoda, or saying, oh well, too quickly, right? Saying that, oh, I don't, I don't really know about this, so I'm just not going to think about it, and you just have to accept it too because that's what faith is. It's not a cop-out. Mystery is not, is not discouraging the mind because we don't know the answer and hoping the other person will just say, okay, I don't know the answer. No, mystery pushes our, our, our minds to understanding, and then after we pushed our mind, only then say, I don't know. There's, there's mysterious things about God. Mystery is not speculation. Speculation bases our knowledge of God on our own thoughts and our own ideas, okay, and not basing it on scripture. If, if you believe that the Bible is the word of God, you have to understand your, your knowledge of God on Bible, not on your own speculation, not on your own ideas or thoughts or feelings. And mystery is not rationalism. After this is one more. Mystery is not rationalism. Mystery is not taking God and trying to make him fit into our human brains, trying to make him fit into what we think God should be, because if we don't understand, if this is mysterious, and I get nervous about mystery, so I'm just going to make God noble. Like, I'm not going to acknowledge mystery, so I'm going to speculate things about God and make him fit my mind. That's not what mystery is. Lastly, mystery leads to worship. Look at Romans chapter 11, verse 33. This is Paul saying, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways. Paul, in, verse, in Romans 9, 10, 11, just tried to explain to us the relationship between God's sovereignty and human will. How does this work together? And at the end of it, he goes, Oh, the depths of the riches, the wisdom of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. He, he fell into mystery, but the word oh, that's the only time that word is in the New Testament. Oh is, is an expression of worship. Oh, how mysterious is God. Only after he's pushed his understanding as revealed in Scripture. Okay? So don't be scared with encountering mystery as we will today. And keep this mind as we talk about the Trinity and the Incarnation, how God became man. We're going to push our minds to its limits. So I invite you to roll your sleeves up with me as we, as we go through this in, in, in pretty depth uh, the, this week. Um, but also, at the same time, acknowledging our limits as human beings. And, and at some point, we must say that, oh, how mysterious, how wonderful are your ways. All right. Three things I want to point out from our passage. The gospel is God humbling himself for us as flesh. The gospel is God making himself known to us in flesh. And the gospel 
is God scarred for us forever as flesh. The gospel is God humbling himself for us as flesh, making himself known to us in flesh, scarred forever for us as flesh. Let me pray before we enter into our first point. Lord, again, as our sinful, finite, limited human minds try to explore what you have revealed to us in your word about knowing you, about who you are, about your character, um, I pray that we would stick with it, and, and, and um, I pray that you would be gracious to us and to give, give our minds the strength to really think through these things as, as limited and revealed by your scripture. And as we do so, Father, I pray that you would also reveal us and lead us into worship, that we may know you, not as speculation, not as our own ideas, but in how you have revealed yourself in scripture with the guidelines and the limitations of scripture and what you have made known to us. Be with us and make us fall in love with you even deeper. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. First point. The gospel is God humbling himself for us as flesh. Okay, so let's take a look at our first verse here, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. First, we have to ask the question, who is the word? Who is this word that John is talking about? Last week, we talked about it. The word is God. Okay, look back at first verse 1 in your, in your printouts. John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the word. And we talked about how this, this first sentence, the beginning was the word, is echoing Genesis. What does it say, Genesis 1, 1? In the beginning, God. John 1 is echoing Genesis 1, saying in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word also was God. And we talked about how this Word was God, and was the Son of God, and is Jesus Christ. Okay, let's, let's look at verse 11. How do we get this? He, the Word, came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Who is he talking about here? Who was not received by his people? But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Who was rejected so that we can be received as a child of God? Jesus Christ. He died on the cross that he can pay for our sins. Who came to his own people and rejected Jesus? Who took the guilt and the vileness of our sins and gave us the right to become the children of God? Jesus Christ. So the word, verse 1 is talking about, who was God, truly God, very God of very God. The Son of God became flesh was made flesh in Jesus Christ. Well, there's a very big question left, left unanswered, isn't there? How did the Word, how did God, who was God, very God of very God, the same God in Genesis 1 that created everything, how did God become flesh? How is Jesus Christ man and God at the same time? This is where verse 14 comes in. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, in this verse, verse 14, this is one of the passages that we encounter that talks about the incarnation, the humiliation of Christ, how God became flesh. And there's a few things we have to be careful about when we talk about the incarnation. We can't just jump into our own ideas and come up with our own thoughts about it. We have to get our conclusion from the scripture, from the Bible. Okay, so what do we know about God from the scripture that can guide us in our thinking of the incarnation, that can guide us in our thinking of how God became flesh in Jesus Christ? There's a lot of things, but I just want to point out one thing. There's one thing in the scriptures about God that guides our understanding of the incarnation, and it is this, that God simply never changes. God doesn't change. God never becomes less than God. God never becomes other than God. God remains God forever. That's one thing about God we have to keep in mind as we study the incarnation. 
Okay? Malachi 3.6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Psalm 101, 25-27, Of old you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. He doesn't change. He never changes. James 1.17, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. It's clear. The scripture over and over and over again tells us that God doesn't change. This is significant. Because somehow, when God became man, when the word took on flesh and took upon the person of Christ, he did so in such a way that didn't change the essence of God. He didn't change when he did that. And this is important. Stick with me, and I pray that at the end of all this, we'll enter into a deeper worship of him. This is where the church has struggled so much in the past. Throughout church history, many have suggested theories of how he became flesh and how the incarnation happened, but all of them fell into error because all these theories, or a lot of these theories, made God change. A lot of these theories change the essence of God. For example, some have suggested that it's kind of like a 50-50. Okay, so God, so 50% of God plus 50% of man, that kind of makes 100% of Jesus. And, and you can't do that because then God would be less than God, you see. God would have changed. It would be 50% of him. But what, of our past, what did our passage say in verse 14? We have seen uh, in verse 14 in the person of Jesus, God's glory in its fullness, full of grace and truth. Verse 16, from his fullness, Jesus Christ, we have received grace upon grace, from his fullness. Colossians 2.9, I think it's on the screen. It says again, for in him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. It's not 50% of God that's in Christ. It's not 50-50, it adds up to Jesus. So, so that's wrong, because then God would have changed. He would be, have become less than God, and Christ would not be fully God. Others have suggested, it's, okay, so if it can't be 50-50, then it's kind of like 100%, you know, with 100%, you mix that up, and then poof, you kind of have this, you have Jesus. So it's kind of like the, the, the nature of God is mixed with the nature of man, and that mixture created something else that is not God and not man, but it's kind of like a, a third thing. Well, with that theory also, the nature of God would have changed, right? The nature of God would have been affected by the chemical reaction or something that was combined with the man, and he would have changed. But God can't change. That, that, isn't, that can't be right also. There are a lot of theories. We can't go through it all. But the church finally came to a conclusion, and this conclusion is acknowledged by the historic Reformed Church as well as our church. Uh, we are Reformed Church. One of them is called the Nicene Creed that we all just read in our statement of faith earlier. Okay? It has a whole section about Christ and how the light, the word, became flesh. But also there's another creed called the Chalcedonian Creed. Okay, this, is, this was written in, in AD 451. Um, I'm going to read it. It's confusing language. Don't be intimidated by it. I'm just going to read it. Who knows? You know, you'll, you'll get something out of it. But later I'm going to explain it, and then I'm, I'm going to give an analogy that could might be helpful. Okay, so let me just read it first. Jesus, to be acknowledged in two natures, God, man, inconfusedly, God, man, unchangeably, God doesn't change, man doesn't change, indivisibly, they're one, inseparably, they're one, the distinction of the natures being by no means taken away by the union, so by the union, God is still God, man is still man, 
100%, 100%, but nothing changes, right? Um, but rather, the property of each nature being preserved and a concurring in one person and in one subsistence, not parted, so it's not divided, it's it, it, into two persons, but one and the same Son, and only begotten God, the Word, right? Theme, John 1, the Word, God, the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm just as confused as you are. Okay. Pretty much it's saying that God must have become man in such a way that doesn't change his godness. God didn't mix with Jesus to become something else. God didn't lose 50% of his godness so that 50% of Jesus' manness can be added. No. God became man in such a way without losing the fullness of his godness. Okay, I'm going to read one, one passage, and then I'm going to get into the analogy that I think could be helpful. Another passage that's helpful for us to understand the incarnation of, of Christ. Philippians 2, verses 5 to 9. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. That's important. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Okay, focus on verse 7. He emptied himself, how? By taking on the form of a servant. He emptied himself by, by taking on another, by taking on something else. Okay, here's, here's the analogy. Wait, let me, let me talk to this. Okay. So the word in verse 1, the Logos God, verse 2, 7, emptied himself by taking another form. It is not, here, here's the key before I get into analogy. See, it is not a humbling by subtraction. What I mean is if God became man in such a way that subtracted from who he is, he would be less than God. It wasn't a humbling by subtraction. It was a humbling by addition. Stay with me. I know that's confusing. It is a lowering. It is an emptying by addition. Let me talk about this analogy, and I think it'll help. Okay, so this isn't a perfect analogy. No analogy can be perfect when you talk about the Trinity or the Incarnation, but I think this can be helpful at least in that one point of how can somebody lower themselves by taking on another identity, okay? By adding, not by subtracting. So in the U.S., there's a reality TV show. You've probably seen it. It's called Undercover Boss. Have you seen it before? Okay, let me tell you what it is. So this reality TV show is the boss of a Fortune 500 company, so it's a big company. Um, uh, the employees don't really recognize or have seen the boss before because it's a big company. They want to know what's going on in the ground level, in the groundworks of the company. So what they would do is they would leave their office, they would go through the hiring process, and they'd be, they would be hired as a staff of their company, as a legal staff of their company. They would work the same hours, they would get paid the same wages so that they can interact and dwell and be among the people in, in this company, in their company. Okay. So, see, the boss humbled himself, he emptied himself by adding onto himself another identity. As a staff of his own company, he worked the same hours, he got the same pay. It was a humbling by addition, not by subtraction. He didn't lose any of his bossness when he did that. You see, his name was still the name that owned the company. His signature was still the signature that was needed if somebody wanted to make a big decision in that company. He was still the legal owner of that company. He still had all power, all glory, all honor of that company. He humbled himself without losing his bossness, but by taking on another identity. 
as a staff. You see? It was a humbling, it was an emptying by addition, not by subtraction. In this way, the God can become staff, I mean, <laughs> the boss can become staff without losing any of his bossness. You see? See, it was an emptying, a humbling, not by subtraction, but by addition. This isn't a perfect, but I think it's a workable analogy for the incarnation and for that one point. God, the Word, humbled himself without losing his godness, without changing his godness. He's still the creator of the universe. He's still Lord of all. He's still the light and the life mentioned in verses 1 to 5. In the beginning, the word, the light, the life. The fullness of God, as Colossians 1 says, dwells in Jesus. He didn't lose any of it. Not 50% of it, not a mix that created some kind of semi-God, but the fullness of God remained in the flesh. How? Again, go to Philippians 2.7 on, on the screen. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He emptied himself by adding, by addition. Okay, not by subtracting. Just like the boss humbled himself by adding unto himself the nature of a staff without losing any of his bossness, God humbled himself by adding, by taking upon flesh without losing any of his godness to be acknowledged in two natures inconfusedly unchangeably indivisibly inseparably the distinction of the natures being by no means taken away by the union but rather the property of each nature being preserved yada 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 okay that's the incarnation now the big that was just that was just a few ver, a few words in verse 14 by the way why did god have to do this why did god empty himself why did god humble himself in the incarnation and take upon flesh in such a way that didn't change his identity as God, why did he do this? Doesn't addition imply change, right? Doesn't addition imply that God's not perfect and he needed something to be added to him? That's not, that's not the case. Let's go to our second point. The gospel is making himself known to us in flesh. God became flesh. God humbled himself to reveal who he is to his people. God added flesh and emptied himself so that he can be known by his people. Stick with me a little longer. I, I promise, I pray that it will accumulate to worship. So why did God become flesh? Why did he humble himself? He can reveal himself to his people. See, sinful man in our sin, we cannot see God or know God in his fullness. This has been the case throughout the Old Testament, which is, by the way, where our passage points us to. Let's look at the themes in our, in our passage again. Look at verse 14 with me. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt there is literally translated as pitching a tent. The word became flesh and pitched a tent among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The theme, God's glory, dwelling, pitching a tent among us, and the words grace and truth. Themes, keep that in your mind. God's glory, dwelling, grace and truth. Pitching a tent, grace and truth. Verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Another theme, Moses, and again, grace and truth. Okay, so let's, let's talk about all the themes that I just, we just mentioned from verses 14 and 17. Moses, or God's glory, pitching a tent with his people. Moses, grace and truth. Grace is steadfast love. That's how you really say, translate grace to, steadfast love and truth. Okay, to the readers at this time, those four themes would have sounded very familiar to their ears it would have pointed them back to the book of Exodus. Where in the Old Testament does it talk about Moses, God's glory, God's glory pitching a tent, the words steadfast love and truth, all in one section. 
Exodus 33 and 34. Stick with me. We're pushing our minds, remember, to, to limits. 33 and 34. Okay. Exodus chapter 33, verse 7. This is our text pointing us back to the Old Testament as it emphasizes the holiness of God. Now Moses, theme, Moses, used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp. For far off from, from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting. The Lord, God's glory, dwelling, pitching himself in a tent. You're seeing these themes? Verse 33, I mean chapter 33, verse 18. Moses said, please show me your glory. Again, Moses and glory. So what's going on here is Moses wanted to move, uh, but before he moved, he said, I'm not going to move until you show me your glory. And then chapter 34, verse 6, uh, God, five, 5 and 6, God finally showed Moses his glory, but he did it, if you read those two chapters, in such a way that doesn't show Moses the fullness of his glory because sinful man can't, can't see God, can't, can't fully see God in that way. Um, so verse 34, 6, so, so, so God put Moses in between two cliffs, and the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. This is the Lord descending and, 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 and making himself visible to Moses. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love and truth, grace and truth. This is what it's referring to. Why would John be pointing us back to this Old Testament text of God's glory, of pitching a tent, of Moses, of the word steadfast love and truth. He's, he's doing that to make a point that God is holy. He is holy, holy, holy. He is righteous. He is without sin. Even Moses couldn't see the fullness of God because he wouldn't be able to. God's glory in a tent that dwelled in a tent that only priests can enter into, he's holy. Moses can't see the fullness of God's glory. He's holy. Also in that, in that whole thing, there's the law. In our passage, we see the law as well. God giving us the law. What is the law about? God's holy standards. God is holy. That's what he's trying to tell you. So as John 1.18 says, chapter 1, verse 18, back to our passage, it says, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. No man has ever seen God because we are utmost holy, I mean, we are utmost sinful, and God is utmost holy. It's like, and I've heard an analogy before, it's like looking directly at the sun. You, all you can do is get a glimpse of it. You can't really get the, the, the details and, the, and, and everything about it. You can only, the human eye can only take so much. We can't see the fullness of God's glory. We can only take so much because of our sins. Moses, for example, and the Israelites saw glimpses of it. Not the full thing, saw glimpses of it, right? Remember in the Old Testament, who did Moses speak to? The burning bush? You guys heard of that story before? The burning bush? That's a glimpse of God's glory. The smoke on Mount Sinai, that, that's a glimpse of God's glory. The, the pillar of cloud and pillar of fire that guided Israel, that's glimpses of God's glory. But it's never the fullness of it. No one has seen the fullness of God's glory until when? Until Jesus. He doesn't see it like we'd see it in Jesus, who became flesh, where the fullness of God dwells, as we've just seen from Colossians and from our passage. So why did God take on flesh? Why did God humble himself and lower himself and empty himself by taking on flesh without changing who he is? Not for himself, but for us, so that we can relate to him, so that he can reveal who he is to us, so that we can know him, no one has ever seen the fullness of God's glory until we see 
Jesus. This is who Jesus is. The Old Testament God, the fiery, smoky, earthquakey, tenty creator God. Jesus is this same God. Look at verse 15. Even John the Baptist says so. John the Baptist bore witness about him, about Jesus, and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. What John is saying is, this person of Jesus was born after me. John was, the Baptist was born first. Jesus was born after me. But really, guys, if you truly know who he is, he was before me. He was very God, a very God. The same God of the Old Testament. So therefore, he ranks before me. The same thing that Jesus said to, about Abraham. Before Abraham was, I am. This is your God who took on flesh so that he can lower himself and humble himself that you may know him more. Okay, great. God emptied himself. God humbled himself by taking on flesh without losing any of his godness, and he came in the person of Christ, but so what? So what? What's the purpose of all that? How, how do I know God more by this son, by the son of God? How do I know God more by, by, by Jesus taking on, or by God taking on flesh in Jesus? This is, again, significant. It tells you how you are to relate to God. It tells you who you are and how you're supposed to view God. Okay? It guides you in that. Notice something really interesting. If you read our text again, verses 1 to 18, the whole, the whole prologue of John, the whole intro to John, God was never mentioned as Father until verse 14. You find that interesting? In verses 1 to 13, when you say God, all you say is God Word, light, life. You never say father. Verses 1, 2, 6, 13. He doesn't say father. Again, in verses 1 to 13, uh, when you talk about the word or the light or the life, verses 1, 4, 5, 7, 8, and 9, you never talk about the son. The son and the father come together as a pair in verse 14. As soon as the word, the word, the word in verse 1, the word that was God, as soon as the word in verse 14 was revealed as the son, what do we see next, right after that? Who was revealed right after that? The Father. Right after the Son appeared, then we know who God is, our Father. He became flesh. He took upon flesh to reveal to us how we're supposed to relate to him as Father and Son. Back then, only the oldest son would receive the inheritance from the Father. Only the oldest son would get the riches and the possessions that the father owned. If there's two sons, the younger one would not get it. The older one would get it. This is significant. God is saying, this is my son. I'm your father, right? I'm revealing yourself to me. And looking at verse 12, all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. What happened on the cross? What is the gospel? The gospel is our, quote-unquote, you can say, I guess, eldest brother, if you want to put it that way, giving us his inheritance, giving us what is rightfully his. He died on the cross to give us what he only deserves. He lived a perfect life. He deserves righteousness and glory and eternal life and, and eternal intimacy with the Father who, that he already had anyways. 
but he became flesh, fulfilled what we could not fulfill, lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died to give us his inheritance. And God is saying, look, the son, the father, you are to relate to me by his death. What he deserves, we're giving to you. Not because of anything you've done. Not because of your righteousness. Not because of your church goingness. Not because of your Bible studyingness. Not because of any of these things. By grace and mercy, I'm giving this to you. This is how you are to relate to me. I took on flesh. I humbled myself. I emptied myself by addition without changing who I am. Not for me. I don't need to do that. I'm God. I'm perfect. I'm doing this for you so that you can know how I want to relate to you, so that you can know who I am to you and who I want to be to you. Not an ATM, not Santa Claus, that if you do good things, he'll give you presents. It's not by your works. It's not by how moral you are. He's giving you his inheritance because of his mercy, him humbling of himself. Romans 8, 15 to 17. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That's who God is to us, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, what's, what does it say? Then heirs. Inheritance, heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. He added flesh unto himself. This is God we're talking about. He emptied himself and counted equality with himself not to be grasped, not to be held on too tightly. He let it go and he humbled himself for us to live the life we should have lived and die the death we should have died. And after having lived this perfect life, after having deserving the inheritance that is rightfully his, he gives it to us. And he cancels the debt of our sin by becoming man and giving the inheritance that only he deserves, by his humiliation, by his obedience, even unto a cross. This Christian is your God. This is who you worship. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made and known. Knowing not just information, knowing not just like, oh, God is this, 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 but in an intimate relationship with the Father. He's died first on the cross that we may truly know him, that he may truly know us. Okay, let's, let's go on to our third point. And after that, we're going to talk about the implications. But now stick with me a little bit longer as we dwell deeper into this passage. So let me just summarize. We've seen point one, that God, the God of the universe, very God of very God, the God of the Old Testament, he humbled himself. He emptied himself by taking upon flesh, by addition. Not for himself, not because he needed to add something else, but for our sake. Right? Verse 14, the word, God, became flesh and dwelled among us. He did this so that he may reveal who he is to us. Okay? As, as God, as a father to a son, that we may truly know him as a loving father who has this father, not by good works we have done, but who have this father because of his mercy on a cross that he has died for us. Jesus, quote-unquote, our older brother, traded places with us on the cross, took our sin upon himself, and gave us the inheritance only he deserves. And the innocent son of God was crucified as a guilty criminal under the Roman court of law so that innocent children like us can be counted as his child in a heavenly court of law. That's the gospel. 
That's what he's done for you. And now all that receive this work may have the right to become the child of God, like our passage says. But let's dwell a little bit longer and end at our third point, okay? First, the gospel is God humbling himself for us as flesh. Second, the gospel is God making himself known to us in flesh as father to son. And third, the gospel is God scarred forever for us as flesh. Have you ever wondered how Jesus' death on a cross paid for our sins? I've sometimes felt that it's, it's not enough. I mean, of course it's enough. I know that's a sinful thought, but I just wonder sometimes. How is it enough? Think about it. The consequences of our sin is eternal, right? It's an eternal separation from God. So how can God come as human and live on earth for 33-something years, suffer it on a cross momentarily, how does 30-something years and suffering on a cross and dying on a cross momentarily pay for my eternal consequence? It seems like the price isn't fair, right? It seems like it should have cost him more. I know that's a sinful thought, but sometimes I just think that. Uh, and you say, well, he was eternal, so the fact that an eternal God died kind of cancels the eternity part of it, or, or you know, how the eternal relationship with the Father and the Son was broken, so I guess something eternal was costed there, so my... But I'm still wondering, how, how does his momentary 30-something years of, of humiliation, of suffering, forgave me from eternal debt of sin? Here we see the depths of the incarnation even more. When God in verse 14 took on flesh, he truly took on flesh. He added onto himself the form of a servant. But how long? How long does this humiliation occur? How long does this flesh stay with him? It's not just momentary. See, when God reveals his glory in the person of Jesus, unlike the Old Testament manifestations of God's glory that we talked about, the smoke, the pillar, the fire, the burning bush, unlike that, that was momentary. That came and went. The bush disappeared. The smoke on Mount Sinai disappeared. The pillar of cloud disappeared. Up to now, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. There is a finality this time. There's something different about the person of Jesus. There's a fullness of God in the person of Jesus that wasn't the same as the Old Testament manifestations of his glory. Okay? There's a finality to it. Compared to the fire and the smoke, the New Testament says that when God humbled himself and became flesh, this wasn't momentary. This was forever. Okay. How do we know that it's permanent? Remember when Jesus resurrected? How did the disciple, who did the disciples see? The person of Jesus, right? The flesh, the body of Jesus. The disciples in Luke 24 um, um, at the end said, who was it that stood with us? Did not our hearts burn within us? It was, it was Jesus. Peter, who was fishing, saw Jesus on the shore. What did he do? He recognized it was Jesus. He left his boat and he swam right to him. Mary in John 20, who saw the resurrected Jesus, said, Rabboni, which means teacher. She recognized it was Jesus. It was the person, the visible person of Jesus. See, the resurrection of Jesus, when God resurrected in the flesh, the tomb was what? Was empty. God was in the flesh resurrected. If you read John, by the way, it's interesting how John added that little detail. The clothes were folded. What does that imply? It implies that he wasn't robbed. Nobody robbed him or took him away. Or it wasn't like a trick. His clothes were folded. <laughs> he resurrected, took the time to fold his clothes, and he appeared. He, he came out in flesh. Many doubted this, like Thomas. 
right? Doubting Thomas. What did Jesus tell him? John 20, 24 to 25, 27, 28. It's also on the screen. Now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Verse 27, 28. Jesus appeared to Thomas. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. And put out your hand and place it on my side. You know, when Jesus was stabbed by the, uh, uh, on the cross on the side, Thomas did that. And he saw the holes in the body of Jesus. And he saw the scar in the side of his, and he saw the scars in his back. And he saw the chastised body of Jesus. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. See, this tells us after the resurrection, God was still, in a sense, in a state of humiliation, you can say, in the state of flesh. But not only that, it was flesh with the bruises and the scars from the crucifixion. After everything was said and done, God remained in the flesh and scarred. Okay, well, that's just like after he resurrected, right? I'm sure sometime in eternity, maybe the scars just needed some time to heal, right? So surely at some point, God, the God of the universe, would stop taking upon himself such lowly flesh. Surely the God of the universe would at some point have his wounds go away and the scars, the crucifixion, would disappear. Will it? Let's go back to Revelation chapter 5, the very passage we read in our call to worship today. Revelation chapter 5, verse 6, and I hope, I hope you're connecting to this and I hope this sticks with you. And this is, this, is a, this is a portrayal of what heaven will be. It's prophetic literature. And before the throne and the four living creatures. This is in heaven. And among the elders, I saw what? I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. What you will see in heaven is the body of Jesus slain for you. Were the scars gone? No. Were the holes there? Yes. A lamb who was slain, this is who you will see. Revelations 5, verses 8 to 9. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And your blood, and by your blood you ransom a people for God. Revelations 5.12, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Guys, this truth should reveal to you just how much God loves you. How does our God look like in heaven? He still carries with him the wounds of the crucifixion eternally because this is what our sin cost him. When the God of the universe became man and humbled himself, when the light of the world came into the world, when the word took on flesh, when God became man, he made an eternal commitment. He knew that he was humbling himself for eternity. It was an eternal commitment. The consequences that he received for paying for our sins, his humbling of the self, his taking on flesh, did not only last 30-something years did not only last on the cross, but it stays with him forever. That when you see your God in heaven, when you see him face to face, 
you will see the wounded Jesus as a lamb that was slain. The same Jesus that Doubting Thomas touched with holes in his hands and his feet, with scars in his head and his back, as if a lamb that had been slain. Christian, this is who you will be in a relationship with eternally. Every day when you see him, you will be reminded of the gospel. When he embraces you, you will be reminded of his wounds. When he speaks to you, you will see his scars. You will see the only reason of why you are here is because this God humbled himself for me, took my place, died on a cross, and committed to me eternally. These are the wounds. These are the scars. This is my God. This is who I worship. This is your God. Now, what does this mean for us? Let's end here. One, it begs the question, do we truly have a relationship with God as a father? When you become a Christian, has your life truly been changed in such a way that a sinner was saved? Because very God of very God died for them. And now you have a relationship. Have you seen God's holiness as as expressed in Exodus? Have you seen how much you fall short of it? And how that should lead you to his mercy and to his grace and to the cross? Becoming a Christian isn't just marked by something your family has been for centuries or years. It's not just something you are because your father and your mother and your friends are. It's, it's, it's a relationship with the Father through the death of the Son. It's a worship of this Lamb that was slain for eternity. Does your life mark somebody that has a relationship with the Father too? It means you don't have, you don't have to be better. You don't have to wait to be better before you receive Him. I often encounter people who are scared to commit to Christ or they receive Christ or they don't want to, be, they don't, they, they don't want to receive Christ, they don't want to be Christian because they say they're not good enough. And they're scared that in the future they're going to like fail or their commitment won't be strong enough so I'm not going to make commitment now. See, this is a misunderstanding of the whole gospel. It's not about how strong your commitment is. It's about how much he has committed himself to you. He pursued you. He humbled himself for you. He took on flesh. It's not about how good you can be. It's about how good he has been to you. Why not receive him? Why? What's the point of waiting? Three, it reminds the Christian that they will never lose their salvation. The commitment God made for you, the price he paid for you, is eternal. His sacrifice is eternal. His wounds remain forever. Thus so is our right as his child when we receive him. Romans 8, 38, 39. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor things present, nor future, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's final. His wounds remain forever. Thus also your right to become his child. Fourth, it exemplifies what true Christian service and humility is. A lot of people, when, they t- when we talk about Christian humility and Christian service, get scared because they think that they're going to be trampled on. They're going to be used and abused. When they hum- they're humble themselves and they serve others, they don't want it because they're going to be used and abused. But, but, the, but, but Christ gives us a different model. See, you're only at risk of being abused by others when you humble yourself, is in when you humble yourself, you lose your identity. When you humble yourself, you don't believe that you're valuable. You don't believe that you're the son of God and the daughter of God. 
and that you're made in God's image. Humbling yourself in such a way that loses your value, that will lead to abuse. That will lead to people using you. But that's not the model Christ gave us. He said humbling by addition. When you humble yourself, you don't lose who you are. You don't lose your sense of self. You don't lose your sense of value. You are still the son and daughter of God. You're made in his image. It protects you from being abused because now you're not being used because you're not worthy or, you know, woe is me. But you're, you're making a choice to take upon yourself the form of the servant because that's what your God did for you. This kind of humbling, this kind of service protects you from being abused because you still hold fast to your value and your identity as a son and daughter of God. Lastly, it should allure your hearts to God that an eternal being would be willing to empty himself for you and taking upon himself the form of flesh forever because he loves you and is faithful to you and he will never leave you. And no matter how hard life gets and no matter how tempting it is to point our fingers at God, remember who you're pointing your finger at. You're pointing your finger to a lamb that was slain. You're pointing your finger to a God that committed himself to you eternally, who was scarred, who was bruised and wounded for you. And you know that as you're tempted to point that finger and say, this is not fair, you look about in scars and, and ask yourself, what is fair? <laughs> that he took your place on the cross. And know now whatever you're going through is not because he doesn't love you, and it's not because he's not able. His scars prove those two things, that he loves you and he's able. This is what your God did for you. That he may reveal himself to you as a father through the son. And will we not now respond to this amazing love? Should not the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering? By our lives, by every decision, by every second. And I pray that after exploring this very rich passage, we'll join the multitude in heaven and say, Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing forever. Amen. Pray with me. Father, the only reason why I can start this prayer with the term Father is because, because God the Son came down, <coughs> took upon flesh, humbled himself, became man, and died in my place and I now may have life and abundance in him. And I may now, a sinner like me, can call a holy God like you, Father, with an intimate term, because you have made yourself known to me by adding onto yourself flesh, not for your sake, but for my sake, for our sake. Lord, let us truly see this grace and mercy. Let us ask ourselves these questions. Is this what my Christianity is about? Is this everlasting life? Or is it just something I am because that's who my friends are and my family is? Has this, has this pattern of humility marked the way I live my life? Or have I held on tightly and grasped strongly my rights and my, what I deserve instead of letting it go like you did when you died on the cross for me? Father, give more mercy and grace and let this truth lure our hearts to you. Let it come and approach you boldly because we don't approach you based on who we are or how good we are, but based on what you have done, how good you have been to us and your commitment for us, which 
as we see in your scars everlasting, that you love us beyond degree. Thank you for this love and for this mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.